at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says with this tone of just exuberance, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's amazing to think that God has applied all of these spiritual blessings to us by the indwelling Holy Spirit, whom we just sung about. And so we enjoy all of these blessings, all of these moments of worship that we have together as as a body of believers here, Four Corners Church, but also all of the, the ways that we enjoy God throughout the week, that we treasure Him, that we savor Him, that we serve Him and obey Him and walk with Him, all of that has been granted to us. And all that we need in order to do that has been granted to us by the Holy Spirit. And so we praise God for His Spirit. He gives His Spirit freely to those who ask Him, Jesus tells us. And He's with us this morning. The Holy Spirit of God is with us as we worship this morning, as we sing, as we, as we preach and, and pray and listen to preaching, read God's Word. We do it all in and by the Holy Spirit. So that's our prayer today is as we move into this time of, of, of the ministry of the Word, that we would ask individually the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us. Because without that, we'll, we'll just leave here the same old way, come back next week, the next week, the same old way. Today we continue our series on Genesis. And this morning we come up to Genesis chapter 6. So if you would please go there. You may not have anticipated a few weeks ago that we would already be in Genesis 6, but we are. Here we are, Genesis chapter 6. Last week we covered all of Genesis 5, which is really the first major genealogy in the Bible. And I started the sermon by discussing how genealogies may come off for you as a little bit dry or maybe unexciting. In fact, this week in our gospel community group, we talked about how uh, typically, you know, the the, the average reader of the Bible, you're going through and you get to the genealogy and you just, you just skip right over that. You know, you had some some key bits before, some encouraging words before, and then you've got this long chunk of names. And then after that, you've got something else. So you just go from one to the next. And this, I think, is, is very typical. We just sort of skip over these passages as dry, unexciting, uninspiring material. But as I said last week, the more we grow in our understanding of the Bible, the more we grow in our appreciation of the biblical genealogies. And I gave a few reasons for why this is the case. Why is it that as we grow in our understanding of the Bible, we grow in our appreciation for its genealogies. And I gave three reasons. I just want to briefly rehearse those. Uh, The first is that God has a plan. The the genealogies give us movement, direction, momentum. They show us that the Bible is filled with purpose and, and therefore there is one who purposes. That there is a God who oversees all of history and therefore all of our lives. If he see, oversees the history of the world, then he certainly can oversee the history of our individual lives. And what this inspires within us is, is trust. Trust in God, that he's with us today. Some of you maybe are sick. Some of you have gotten some bad news, perhaps from a doctor. Some of you are struggling with kids, small or grown. 
Some of you maybe are depressed or anxious, relationship problems, financial problems, and you need to hear the fact that there is a God who oversees your life. There's a God who plans our ways and who ordains things in our world and who works all things for our good. And I think in a real way, the genealogies tell us that that is the case. Secondly, I said that uh, these genealogies remind us that God works in and through people. Everyday people, broken people, people like David. I mean, you can't read the story of David's life and see what he did to Uriah and with Bathsheba and think uh, that God can't use broken people. And in very specific helpful, edifying ways like in the case of David or even Solomon to write the Proverbs, to build the temple. And yet this is a man who spent much of his life just in folly. God can use people. He does use people. And the genealogies tell us that. So they encourage us to seek the Lord's will for our lives, to seek to be useful to God while we breathe, while we have life in this world. And then finally, It tells us, these genealogies tell us that God's plan and God's working through people ultimately boil down to and center on one person, and that is Jesus Christ. The genealogies all move towards one person, and that person is Christ the Lord. And so uh, when when it comes to Christmas time, maybe this year, Christmas 2018, maybe Uh, As you prepare for that and you open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 1 and start to read the genealogy, maybe you can see that in a more edifying, positive light. I hope that will be the case. I remember the first year I was at Four Corners. I've said this before, but uh, we had a number of uh, biblical readings for uh, our Christmas Eve service, and I was kind of gung-ho. Uh, uh, and uh, maybe a little bit too idealistic. And so I had someone stand up and read the whole genealogy. Uh, maybe that felt a little, uh, a little heavy and burdensome there on our Christmas Eve service, but I enjoyed it. Uh, I hope that maybe some others did as well. So the, this is the importance of genealogies. I hope that we'll begin to see them in this way. So that was last week, genealogy. And if last week was genealogy, this week could be characterized as difficulty. Really, that is what we're up against this week. One leading evangelical commentator named Kenneth Matthews said this about the passage before us today. Unquestionably, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, is the most demanding passage in Genesis for the interpreter. He goes on later to say that it humbles the expositor. And then he says, every verse is a source of exegetical difficulty. So when you have someone, two volumes, he he has written on Genesis, and he says that of all the verses in Genesis, of all the chapters in Genesis, here we are at the most difficult passage in all of this book. And some might argue that this belongs in the top, say, handful of difficult passages in all of the Bible. So that's what we have before us today. But before we jump into these verses, I want to wrap up a few loose ends from last week, specifically concerning the lifespans and timeline reflected in the chapter 5 genealogy. And let me just say something about this morning that I think you might find a little bit unique. One of the things that every preacher tries to avoid, 
or should try to avoid, is uh, turning a sermon into an academic lecture. Because that's not what a sermon is. Some sermons are going to be more, sermons will be more or less substantive. I think they all should be substantive uh, and, and rich in explanation and detail and content. I think that's, that should always be the case. That's normative, that sermons should be that way. But I think the preacher should always avoid making sermons academic in, in nature, a lecture heavy on explanation. But I have to tell you that unfortunately, uh, this morning, it's quite difficult to, to avoid that. So, so if we are ever going to, to reach a passage where there, it, it seems a little heavy on the mind, a little heavy on the ears, a little heavy in explanation, I think this would be one of those. So I, I just, that's just a little warning. I'm just telling you that to kind of prepare you to kind of strap in and uh, stick with me this morning. There's a lot of, of things to consider, and, and I, I really don't, don't go even near uh, as far as, as really one can go, uh, but this is going to involve just a lot of, uh, of explanation. So hopefully this morning we'll be able to endure that. So first, before we even get into this most difficult of all passages, I just want to talk a little bit, as I said I would last week, about uh, the genealogy in terms of the timeline and in terms of the lifespans. Uh, those are just glaring questions. We just can't skip over those, and you'll see what I, I mean in a moment. The title for that sermon last week was The Hopeful Line. Unlike the line of Cain described in Genesis 4, here we are given the line of Seth, and that's what we have in chapter 5. You go back to the very beginning of chapter 5, and you have Adam, and then Seth, and then Enosh, and it just goes on, and you've got it all the way up till Noah and his three sons, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, as our son said one time when he was two, uh, who are the sons of, of Noah, Jake? He said, Sham, Ham, and Turkey. It's not <laughs> Sham, Ham, and Turkey. It's Sham, Ham, and Japheth. But that is the line. That is the line of Seth. This is the line of promise. This is the line of the seed. God told the serpent that there would be enmity between the woman and her seed and between, uh, between the woman and the serpent, between her seed and the seed of the serpent. In other words, that there would be one who would come, and, and he goes on to say there in Genesis 3, who would crush the head of the serpent, who would crush Satan. And so we have this seed figure, and in Hebrew, it's the word he. So who is the he is the question that we should ask all throughout the Bible. Who's the he? Who's the he? It's not this person, not that person, not that person. And the New Testament comes along and says, Christ, Christ is the he. Jesus of Nazareth is the he. And it's through this line of Seth that we expect the seed. This is the line of promise the line of the seed, it is the line of worship. We're told at the end of chapter 4 that, that, that people began to call upon the name of the Lord at the time of Enosh. And so here we have this, this line of worshiping God in faith. We know that this kind of replaces Abel. And what do we know about Abel from Hebrews 11? He was a man of faith. He believed God. He trusted in God. So this is a line of people who are to be characterized largely by their trust, not entirely, but largely by their trust in God. It is a line of creational blessing and fulfillment, as we looked at last week. It is the line of life. We have Enoch being taken up, communion with God, and he does not die, which reminds us that through this line there is life. 
We're meant to anticipate the life who is Christ when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He has come to give life and to give it abundantly. So we see this is the line of life. And we also see that this is the line of anticipation of deliverance. When we get to Lamech, he has a son named Noah. And he says, uh, essentially to paraphrase, that God is going to give us some deliverance, some comfort, he says specifically, some comfort through Noah. We know that generally that implies deliverance. And Noah will be a means of deliverance for the people through the flood. And that ultimately points to Christ, who is the deliverer. So, all of that to say, it is a hopeful line, but it is also a strange line. It's a strange line. Why do I say that? Well, maybe you think Enoch being taken up to heaven is kind of strange, and that is a little unique. We only have one other person in the Bible whom that happens to, and that's Elijah. So in that sense, yeah, a little strange, but that's not what I mean here. Why is it I'm saying this line is a strange line? It's a hopeful line, but it's also a strange line. And I think it's because of these huge lifespans. When we read through the genealogy of chapter 5, we've got people living 800, 900 years. In fact, most of them in the very beginning lived 900 years, 777 years for Lamech. He's kind of on the low end. Some in the 800s, and then most of them, of course, in the 900s. Methuselah, oldest person to ever live, almost a millennium, 969 years. Jared lives 962 years. These guys live a very long life, so we had a good time in our group this week having a little parenthetical discussion about when they became kind of teenagers, and, you know, when... When, I, I, when do you start aging? When are you considered old? Are you, are you a senior citizen at 500 years or 600 years? Or does that not happen until you're 900? It's, it's, it's just hard to, to say. But this is also strange to us. We read this and we, we wonder what is going on here. Well, the first thing to notice is that lifespans decrease after the flood. We see that very clearly. So in Genesis 11, that's the next uh, we'll, we'll get down to that point. That's the next big genealogy, Genesis 11, from roughly 450 years. So it starts there, 450. So when you get to the Genesis 11 genealogy after the flood, you're starting with about 460 years or so, as opposed to 960 years. Now you're at 400. We've just lost 500 years on the high end of a lifespan. So we've got We've got 450 years roughly, and then you see very, you just walk through that genealogy in Genesis 11, and it goes from 450 to 250, to a little, little over 150 by the time you get to Abraham. Abraham lives 175 years, Isaac 180, Jacob 147. And interestingly, with Job, we get the language that in the latter part of his life, after the suffering that he had endured, when God restored him, he lived another 140 years. And most scholars will say, will put Job in the, in the period of the patriarchs, because the book is something uh, that Job's the oldest written book, the oldest book in the Bible. But we have Job kind of situated in this period of the patriarchs, living at least over 140 years. Moses... 120 years. But in Psalm 90, which is attributed to Moses, 
He says this, he's praying, and he says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Well, that kind of jives with what we understand uh, about life. I mean, the, the average age, I think, is early 80s. America, I think, is a little less than Britain and some of the other European countries. But around 80 or so, we push that upwards. So it's no longer in the sort of 73, 75, 77 range. It's up around 80, a little more. My grandmother's 83. Some of you, I don't think any of you are in your 80s, maybe. Um, but this is kind of the, the, the basic lifespan that we anticipate now, 70 or 80 years. So we see that it decreases after the flood. And some have suggested that the shortening of lifespans after the flood is due to what we're going to read today in Genesis 6-3. So today we come to chapter 6, verse 3. We're going to read this, but I want to go ahead and front this. I want to go ahead and bring this forward because it's relevant to this discussion about lifespans before the flood, which seems strange. So here's what it says in chapter 6, verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in or with man forever." For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. So what do we do with that? Well, people are divided over how to interpret that. Some would say, okay, this means that after the flood, people can expect to live about 120 years. God's made a decision before the flood. He's cutting off all this long life thing going on. And he's after the flood, he's going to reduce it to 120 years. And I think that's, a, in some ways, it could be interpreted as a valid view because eventually maybe we get there. But the reason I don't tend toward that view of, of this verse is that we see, just in Genesis 11, people still living 400 and some years. And, and even with Abraham, it's 175 years. So it seems to me that's not the best way to interpret these years, 120 years. Instead, one could see this as referring to the time that will pass before God brings the flood. So those are two ways of interpreting those 120 years. Will it be 120 years from the time God makes this decision in Genesis 6 till the time he brings the flood? We know that Noah's mentioned as being 500 years old at the, when Shem, Ham, and Japheth are born. And then we know that God brings the flood at 600. So was it before Noah turned 500 that God made this decree? And we have 120 years later. And then God brings the flood. Or... Are we talking about a movement away from these long lives to 120 years? And I would go with the, the former view that I just mentioned there. So, why did people live so long before the flood? We don't know. There you go. I mean, that's the answer, really, at the end of the day. We don't know. Pre-flood environmental conditions... A canopy over the earth associated with the expanse that protected man from the sun. Less mutations uh, that early in human history, perhaps. We know that incest, as we understand it, that's a, a taboo idea, but it wasn't in the early stages of human history. Part of the reason is due to uh, the lack of genetic mutations that it would have caused. So maybe that's associated with these long lifespans. We know that by the time you get to the law, you cannot marry your sister. 
So is it less mutations then, God's blessing and intention that the early history be transmitted accurately across time? I mean, one of the things that's very interesting is how many generations of those early people were, uh, lived at the time of Adam. Can you imagine? I mean, all the way up till Lamech, he's able to kind of find Adam, old, 930-year-old Adam, Long, long white beard. I mean, some of you guys think you have great beards. Long white beard. And go and talk with him about the history of the world. What happened in Eden? What happened at the beginning of, of, of humanity? What was going on in the garden? What about Satan? Adam is alive for all of these generations. All the way up to, as I said before, Lamech. So, we don't know. We don't know why. Maybe it's a combination of these reasons. Maybe it's one of them primarily and others uh, in a secondary way. But what we know is that the Bible gives us these long lives. And they're not that strange when you look at the subsequent pages of history because it does seem to decrease incrementally. It's not like this is a crazy out of touch period of time in the history of the world. So, two things we do know before I move on from lifespans. Two things we do know. First, these lifespans are really quite moderate when compared to others in the ancient world. So, for example, we've got a list of Sumerian kings, antediluvian Sumerian kings. What I mean, before the flood, a list of, of kings of Sumeria before the flood. And what's interesting is these kings' lives are listed as anywhere between 6,000 and 72,000 years. That tells us, just like we have all of these ancient accounts of the flood, we have all these accounts of the flood, we'll talk more about that as we go forward, uh, from, from ancient civilizations pointing back to a flood. And of course, it's been perverted and twisted. It, it, it speaks to the reality of this event that had happened. And the fact that we've got these ancient records of these people who live a long time also points to the reality and historicity of this. But where in the Sumerian lists you have 72,000 years for the life of a king, life of a great one of old here, just 900 or 800. So, so when you view the, this list in comparison, this is my point, in comparison to those other ancient lists, it really seems quite moderate, quite reasonable, quite realistic really. Not so out of touch with reality. So that's the first thing we know. The second thing we know is that when we consider that man was meant to live forever before the fall, think about that. I mean, before the fall, man would have lived millennia. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years. In fact, forever. Immortal. Man and woman were made to live forever. So when you get to a genealogy like we have in, chap in chapter 5, when you get to this, these long lives listed here, these long lifespans, you have to put them up against immortality. When you put 900 years up against immortality, it doesn't seem so far-fetched. It puts these into perspective. Okay, so that's one loose end, if you're still with me. One loose end from last week is these lifespans, which you might have wondered about. Maybe some of you didn't wonder about it, don't care about it, and you're like, would he move on? I'm moving on. I'm moving on right now to another one that you may not be interested in, and that is the timeline. 
The second loose end that I want to touch on is the timeline of the genealogy. If we simply add up all the years, from Adam to the flood, we get 1,656 years. This puts the creation of man at around 4,000 B.C. So, you've heard of Bishop James Usher, maybe, in the 1600s. He is the one who's famous for calculating the age of the earth or calculating human history uh, specifically. Actually, he calculates, he gives a, a date and a time when God made uh, the earth, made everything. But he takes it back to 4004 BC. And it's, it is a result, uh, primarily, at least in the, on the early stages of it, it it's a result of, of calculating these genealogies, 1,656 years. And what you get, given the time of Abraham and kind of looking at the genealogy in chapter 11 and calculating that between Noah is 4004 B.C. But many evangelical scholars have pointed out that biblical genealogies can sometimes intentionally skip generations in order to provide a shortened or compressed history or to provide symmetry in presentation. Let me give an example of where we find this in the Bible. Okay, where, where we have a, a compressed version of the genealogies. So a father, by the way, let me say this. In the Bible, if, if someone is the father of so-and-so, that can, that can skip a number of generations. You can be uh, a, a grandfather, a great-grandfather of someone, and they'd be referred to as your father. We, we get a sense of this in English when we say, you know, our forefathers kind of thing. We're not talking about necessarily our dad and our grandfather. We might be talking about people who lived hundreds of years ago. And so uh, some have argued that what we have here uh, could be a compressed history, uh, like what we find in Matthew 1.8. So in Matthew 1.8, Joram is said to be the father of Uzziah. And we know from Chronicles that Matthew has skipped over three generations. We know that because we can go and we can read it in Chronicles and we can see that he skipped over three generations of names. And he's done this intentionally to give us this, this memory device where we have the 14, the 14, and the 14 generations. 14 Abraham to David, 14 David to captivity, 14 from the Babylonian captivity up to the Lord Jesus. And when we come to Genesis 5 and 11, we get 10 and 10. So there are 10 names mentioned in Genesis 5 and, and 10 names mentioned in Genesis 11. So some have said this could be going on here in Genesis 5. Some have said that. But let me say this. Even if, this is very important for our understanding of how recent man came into being on the earth and how we relate to certain fields of science or certain conclusions of scientists. Let me say that. Our, our, our issue, the issue oftentimes between Bible-believing Christians is not with science. It's never with science. We believe in the God who made the natural world. We love science. We love art because our Father in heaven made it all and gave us reason to discern and understand the world. Our issue is never with science. It's with the particular views of individual scientists, which become consensus views like that very quickly and oftentimes unreasonably 
so. But even if some generations have been skipped, one certainly does not get the impression that many have. As one commentator notes, let me read this quote to you. As you're thinking about how long human beings have been on the earth, it says this, any gaps, any gaps, if there are gaps, any gaps in chapter 5's genealogy could not, listen closely to this, could not on the basis of biblical practice. In other words, yes, the genealogies do skip. That's, that's something that happens in the Bible. But they could not on the basis of biblical practice be sufficient to oblige the hundreds of millennia required by evolutionary paleontology. What does evolutionary paleontology say for those of us who just want to sort of drink in everything that scientists are telling us about the history of the universe, about the history of the earth, about the history of mankind? What are they telling us that about 300,000 to 200,000 years ago, we have the, the, the appearance of homo sapiens on the earth? That's what the current schema says. And here's what we need to know this morning. There's no way under the sun that you can get that out of this. Even if this genealogy skips a few names here and there. But Ken Ham, for some, some of you know who Ken Ham is. Uh, recently, our family went to the Ark Encounter up in Kentucky. And Ken Ham is uh, the, the founder of Answers in Genesis, which is a ministry that I think does a, a lot of wonderful things in uh, standing beside a biblical view of creation. And there's obviously disagreement among evangelicals as to the fine points. We talked about that some with the days of creation. And I gave you my view of six literal 24-hour days. But evangelicals discuss these things and, and many uh, disagree, but, but Ken Ham, with Answers in Genesis, argues that it is difficult to find a place where there would be skipped generations. And I, and I find his argument pretty convincing. Here's what he says. He says that you don't have any skipping where naming takes place, right? So you might have so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, uh, but what you have in Genesis 5, stay with me if you will, what you have in Genesis 5 are you have, you have people who name their son. Well, you don't name someone five or six generations down the road. You name your actual son, not your great-great-great-grandson. You name your son. And so we know at least where these places where the, 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 the figure is said to name his son that we don't have any skipped generations. Well, that, that takes out the, the, the gap between Adam and Seth. It takes out between Seth and Enosh. And it takes out between Lamech and Noah. So put that in the, in, in the hat. The second thing I want you to consider is that Jude 14 says that Enoch is the seventh from Adam. So I suppose one could argue, well, seventh from Adam, princes, according to the genealogy in Genesis, perhaps. But he says that. He uh, uh, unqualified. He's the seventh from Adam, which suggests that the period between Adam and Enoch has, has no skipped generations. And finally, where this genealogy is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, the generations are exactly the same. One of the reasons we know that the Matthew 1.8 genealogy skips a few is that we can go and read it in Chronicles and we can see that three have been skipped. This is not the case with Genesis. You can go to Luke chapter 3 and you find this genealogy there listed exactly the same. Not in a context like with Matthew where there's numbers involved and he's trying to make it all fit together. 
just simply laid out for us. First Chronicles 1, 1 to 4. The names appear in the exact same order as we have in Genesis 5. Okay. So I'm done with gen, uh, timeline as well. If, uh, if everyone is still awake, let's go ahead and turn Genesis 6. Genealogies uh, are complicated, but this is the first great one of the Bible. And I think it's important for our understanding of the history of mankind, how we relate to certain presuppositions of science, certain theories put forward by scientists, and how we are to understand these lifespans. Because some will come along, let me just put this in a little bit of context, some will come along with evolutionary paleontology and say, see, look, this is ridiculous. Some will come along and say, 930 years, okay, see, this is ridiculous. And what I'm trying to help you to understand is why it is that this is not ridiculous. And when seen in this light, it's quite reasonable. In fact, I read something this week where uh, it, it talked about how we see the advent of civilization about 6,000 years ago. And there's debate over the dating of cave paintings and other things, but, but even people will say that, that civilization really comes on the scene in that period or a little after that. 9,000, 10,000, 6,000 B.C. So I think these are important details to work through and to think through. All right. So the title for the sermon today, yes, that still, we still have a sermon ahead of us. Uh, the title for the sermon today is A Sorrowful State, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. Let me go ahead and get you to stand, and we will read God's Word and pray. I'll go ahead and let you know we're not going to cover all of these verses today. I think you probably at this point need to hear that. So here we go. This is God's word. Genesis 6 verses 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in or with man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Praise God for his favor. Go ahead and be seated. Let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time this morning as we continue. Father, we thank you for the passage we looked at last week. and We thank you for how genealogies, even genealogies from your inspired word can be edifying to us and can 
act as a bulwark to us, even in this age of mass uh, doubt over the veracity and legitimacy and historicity of your word. God, we thank you for ministries like Answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research and other ministries, even among those within evangelicalism who disagree on various points. We thank you for those who are giving their lives to defending a biblical view of creation and the history of the world that we get in these opening chapters of Genesis. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to walk through these verses and to be able to apply them to our lives, to be able to think through your large, magnificent story, the story that gave rise to Christ, the story that will ultimately end in our glorification in heaven. Father, we praise you for that. We look forward to that day when we will be with you, and we know it's not far off for all of us live in this world and our lives are like a breath, like a fading flower, glorious today, gone tomorrow. Father, we thank you that in due course we will be with you. We will see you face to face. Father, would you grow us in this hope and would we be sober-minded as we come to a passage like Genesis 6 and would we consider the weight of our own sin? God, help us to grieve over the sin that grieves your heart. We pray, Father, that you would move our hearts to hate our own sin, to desire above all things to be pure and spotless and blameless at the coming of Christ. Father, we pray that you would conform us more and more into his image and that you would do that even this morning through this very tedious and explanation-rich kind of sermon, God, that you would speak to us. Show us yourself, we ask. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So the reason I have chosen the title, A Sorrowful State, for these eight verses is that the way it begins in in verse 1 of chapter 6, when man began to multiply, dot, dot, dot. So we're meant to understand a condition of humanity here, a state of being for man on the earth. That's what we're going into when we look at chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. This is a condition that the world has entered into. And what are we to say about this condition? I think most fundamentally, verses 6 to 7, it says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. And it goes on to say, For I am sorry that I have made them. This is a sorrowful state in the truest sense because it is sorrowful to the Lord God. His perception is reality. And God's perception, what we have in these opening verses describing the world back then is sorrowful. There are three things that characterize this sorrowful state, and you'll have these listed in your bulletin. I am only going to cover the first one today. Okay, so just the first one today. We'll look at verses one to four. We're not going to do all three. We'll come back and do the second two next week. So these are the three. The three things that characterize this sorrowful state. Here they are. One, the demons. Two, the depravity. Three, the destruction. Today we're just going to look at the demons. And then next week, we'll look at the depravity and the destruction. So in other words, today we're going to take on the really hard bit. And then next week, we'll go to some other hard bits, but not quite as hard as as this bit. 
All right, so look with me at verses one to four. Again, if you will, I want to look at these very closely. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Wow. This is, uh, this is hard territory. This is difficult. What do we do with a passage like this? It strikes us as very strange. Who are these Nephilim? And what does it mean that the sons of God came in and married the daughters of men? This is very uh, difficult terrain, very difficult territory, even by those guys who would write various volumes, numerous volumes on the book of Genesis. There have been a number of interpretations as to who these sons of God are. And maybe you've already dealt with this. I was talking to uh, one of our, our deacons here this past week, and we were just talking about this, this very difficult passage and, and, and the various interpretations. And maybe you've already got a view. Maybe you've already studied this. Maybe you've written a paper on it in college or, or, or in seminary or somewhere else. And maybe you have an idea of what you already think. And, and that's absolutely fine. But there are two views that have risen to the top. And both of these have been held by key thinkers throughout church history. So it's not one of those things here where you can go to the church fathers. What do they think? You can't go to the reformers and say, what do they think? Split. Or go to, you know, godly uh, pastor theologians today and say, uh, what do they think? Or, or uh, commentators, the, the best academic commentaries on Genesis 1 to 11. What do they think? It's split. And these are the two views that come up when talking about these sons of God. The oldest view among Jews and the earliest church fathers. So the view of the Jews between, uh, it's called the intertestamental period. The, the view of Jews between the Old Testament, the writing of Malachi and all of the Old Testament uh, before that, and then the New Testament. The view of Jews during this time and of the very earliest church fathers, people like Irenaeus and Justin and others, in the view of Josephus, the great Jewish historian, the prevailing view early on and the view that I currently hold to, which you have there clearly by the word, the demons, it's obvious uh, what, what, I, my, what I conclude here. The oldest view and the view that I hold to is that the sons of God are indeed fallen angels, regardless of how hard that is to chew on, how hard that is to process. That, I think, is how we are to understand this, that these are fallen angels. So... This means that fallen angels somehow had sexual relations with human women, the daughters of man. That's one view. You may say, uh-uh, not my view right now. Okay, 
Here's the second view. The second major view is that the sons of God are those in the line of Seth. A little more palatable there. That they are the, those in the line of Seth and the daughters of man are from the line of Cain. So the godly line is mixing with the godless line. We know from the Old Testament that, that God will tell his people not to intermarry with the, the pagans. And they do that in Judges. They're not supposed to do that, but they do that. We know that Paul will say that we're not to be unequally yoked. And that applies even to who we marry and marital relationships and so forth. So, so perhaps sons of God coming to the daughters of men, not all that strange because what we have here is just, okay, this, this line of Seth intermarrying with this line of Cain. That's the other major view. As, as these various views drift to the top, those are the two that get the most attention. So why in the world, if I could opt for this second view, would I hold to the angel view? Why not take the easier view? That just eliminates any difficulty. So let me first say, before I give you the answer to that question, I told you there's going to be a lot, we got a lot of little issues to work through. But before I get into that, I just want to say that the line of Seth view is really quite reasonable. It's not the view that I hold to, but I think it's quite reasonable. And I don't put it aside lightly. We've seen the two lines. We've seen that very clearly as we've been coming up to Genesis 6. I mean, we got this clear sense that we got a line of Cain and a line of Seth. That cannot be denied. We've seen the contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. The line of Cain produces in the seventh place, what? Lamech, who kills the man out of revenge and boasts about it. And then a seventh place in the line of Seth, we got Enoch, who walks with God and is taken up into heaven. We're meant to compare the two. This is where the line of Seth goes to Enoch. The line of Cain goes to Lamech. Look at how much contrasting these two guys are. So that's clearly playing out. And we've seen that a theology of sonship and God as father appears to be present. God makes Adam in his image and likeness and, and Adam has a son, Seth, in his own image and likeness. So we're meant to see, stay with me please, we're meant to see going back to the beginning that, that there is a bit of a theology of sonship, that human beings are seen as image bearing sons of God. This is not explicit, but I think it's underneath. So for all of these reasons, I think the view that here you have the line of Seth intermarrying with the line of Cain is a reasonable view. I just think it's wrong. And there are a number of reasons why I lean towards the angel view that what we have going on here is a unique instance, and I want to emphasize that, it's a unique instance of demons entering the world and marrying human women. So let me give you those reasons. You can accept them, reject them, just think through them. First, the exact language used in Hebrew is only used in the Old Testament to refer to angels. So it is the case that this language, sons of God, b'nei ha Elohim in Hebrew, the sons of God, refers only to angels in the Hebrew Bible. And so, we get it in Job, chapter 1, verse 6, which is the content of which is repeated in chapter 2, verse 1. And here's what he says. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So, remember the beginning of Job? You have Satan. He comes to, to God. 
And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, ah, Job would curse you to your face, God, if you pulled away your blessings from his life. Watch. And so we begin to see the sufferings of Job and his vindication, ultimately God's vindication, at the end and Job's blessing. But the point I want to draw your attention to here is that we get the language of sons of God. We get it again later in Job. B'nai Elohim. Same idea in Job 38, 7. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In other words, when God was creating the world, God looks at Job and says, where were you, Job? You're asking me all these questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I made everything that exists? And God goes into a bit of a discussion on that. And he describes this as a time when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. In other words, as God is making creation, as he's creating the world, creating the sun, creating the universe, what's going on in heaven? The sons of God, angels, are praising God in heaven for all that he is making. Language, sons of God. But that's just the first reason. The second reason is daughters of man draws the reader back to Seth's line where daughters are mentioned repeatedly, not to Cain's line. Now follow my logic here. Think about this for a second. When you go through the genealogy in chapter 5, constantly we get the refrain, and he had sons and daughters, sons and daughters, sons and daughters, sons and daughters. We've been introduced to this word daughters over and over and over again. In the line of Cain? No. In the line of Seth. And so it would be strange if when you get to the beginning of of chapter 6, that for the writer to say, to, to associate the daughters of man with the line of Cain. It is to go back uh, over, really, to jump over all these instances of daughters, 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 and to go around to Cain where we don't have that language. So it seems to me that to equate the daughters of man with the line of Cain really is kind of grasping for straws. It's just, I don't think it's the direction we should go. Third, verse four gives us the impression that this union of the sons of God and daughters of men produces unusual but not superhuman kinds of people. Very strange kinds of people. So what do we get? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What do we do with that? Well, it seems to be a bit unusual. These are particularly uh, noteworthy people who seem to be the produce, the fruit of this union. Not just a general, hey, the ungodly and the godly got married. But there seems to be something strange going on here that produces these, these particularly exalted kinds of human beings. The word Nephilim is translated giants in the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament. Gigantes, where we get the word gigantic. This is the word in the ancient Greek and Latin versions of this. And in Numbers 13, 33, we read this from those who went into Canaan. So imagine, you remember that story where Moses sends the Israelites into Canaan and they're going to conquer with God's help. God is going to conquer the Canaanites, the promised land, and he's going to establish his people there in the land of Canaan. 
And we got these spies that go in and most all of them except for two, Joshua and Caleb, come back and they're so afraid. They're quivering because the people in that land, they say, are so big and so mighty and so powerful. And it's in that portion there, Numbers 13, that they say, and there we saw the Nephilim. And listen to the description. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seem to them. In other words, these people come back and they tell Moses, we cannot beat those people. We cannot go into the promised land. Those guys are so strong and actually they're so large in stature that we look like little grasshoppers on the ground in comparison to these guys. So I think we are to conclude these are gigantic men, large men, giants, maybe like Goliath plus some, mighty men, men of renown. So that's the second reason, or the third reason. The fourth reason is it appears to be the view of the New Testament authors. So Jude 6 says this, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under the gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. In other words, I think we are meant to read Jude 6 as describing not just the fall of, of demons, of angels from heaven, but we're meant to see this period of time. And we get similar language in 2 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3, which uh, can be, I think, associated with this period prior to Noah, where we have these demons leaving their proper place and coming down to be with human women. Finally, a big part of why I think people reject this view is because it just seems improbable. And I want to read you a quote from one of the leading scholars who study Genesis and one of the leading commentators on the book of Genesis. In fact, anyone who's going to preach Genesis, this would be an absolutely essential commentary to look at. This is what he says. His name's Gordon Wynnum. He says this, If the modern reader finds this story incredible... That reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or ill. But those who believe that the creator could unite himself to human nature in the virgin's womb will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. We are a people who believe that, that our savior is virgin born. That God united himself to human nature and that God became flesh. Here's the thing. People who say they don't believe in demons or the devil, they don't believe in God either. Because we're talking about things that are unseen. A lot of people will say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in the devil. That's ridiculous. They only say they believe in God because it's kind of, uh, it's kind of accepted. You know, I mean, a lot of people believe in God. But the devil and demons, that's a different story. That's just far-fetched. That's strange. It sounds like mythology of some sort. But as he says here, these spirits exist. And despite our materialism and all the time we spend on our phones, all the time we spend with things tangible that we can touch and feel and smell and taste and so forth in this very materialistic, godless, naturalistic world, we are reminded even at a time like this in Genesis chapter 6 that God exists and the enemy exists. And he exists to wage war on you and me on this world. Satan and his demons are real whether we think it is silly 
or not. I want to give several additional considerations before we finish up this morning, and I try to apply this a little specifically to our lives. Revelation 12, 3 to 9 tells us that Satan fell along with a large group of other angels. So where does the devil come from? Where does all this begin? Revelation 12, 3 to 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And earlier in chapter 12, it says that he, uh, a third of the angels were wiped down with him. So what we have essentially is a fall that predates the human fall. This is the fall of angels that God made angelic beings and he made human beings. When God made angelic beings, some of them fell at the instigation and leadership of this one cherub, this one very beautiful, powerful angel. We read about him in Isaiah and Ezekiel. He fell from heaven because of his pride, his wickedness, his desire to be God. And when he fell, he brought with him a third of the angels. A third. It's incredible. And these angels still exist. They are called demons. We haven't seen Satan since the garden, but we know he's working. Where's he at? Here we got the very beginning of human history. We have this serpent. We have Satan who tempts Eve and brings all this to pass. I mean, none of this would have happened, right? Had it not been led, had Eve not been led through her own heart, the sin was from her, but she was led by the hand by Satan. What's he been doing all this time? What was he doing when Cain was murdering Abel? What was he doing when Lamech was boasting of his vengeance? What was he doing all this time? He hasn't been sleeping. He's been working. We know that he deceives. We know that there's a state of hostility between him and the seed of the woman, between him and the human race as a whole. We know also that Satan has already taken the form of a serpent. So let, me, let me say this to you. If you think Genesis 6 is incredible, you should also think Genesis 3 is incredible, right? I mean, they're logically connected. In other words, if, if you think that it's impossible that demons could somehow take on human beings, take, either, either enter, possess human beings. I don't, I don't know exactly how that played out. I confess, I don't know. But if you, if you think that Satan can take on the form of a serpent and tempt Eve, then it is not in any way implausible that what we have here in Genesis chapter 6 could happen. In fact, throughout the New Testament, we see demons taking over people throughout the pages as Jesus casts out demons. And it's interesting, in Luke 8, 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. You know what's interesting about that? The demons, it appears, do not like to be just, just without bodies. They, they want to enter something. Listen to this language in Luke 11. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. In other words, there seems to be, although we know angels don't marry or are not given in marriage, there seems to be this, this desire among these fallen angels to somehow take on bodies of some sort. It's very, it's very strange. But it seems to appear throughout. So what do we do with all, with all of this? I did warn you in the introduction. What do we do with all of this content, all of these thoughts? 
Well, part of the sorrowful state is that demonic spirits had entered the world and produced offspring. And this entering could not have happened apart from man's invitation. I want you to see that. Satan works on hearts who then embrace his lies. They took any they chose, it says. You know what this means? That the world at that time was so turned towards demonic worship, so turned towards pagan worship. We know that later in society that the Canaanites were sacrificing their children to false gods. We know that people in South America did that. People throughout the whole world have, have done these wicked, diabolical things in the name of their religion. They've worshipped these pagan gods. And Paul tells the Corinthians that these pagan gods are demons. All of them that the nations worship. They were demons. And we see here that the demons are able to run free. Among man, suggesting some kind of worship in the background, possibly the background of wanting to be like God. Satan tempted Eve, if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. And perhaps these demons say, if you let us in, if you let us be a part of you, if you let us take hold of these women whom we find pleasurable and attractive, then you will be like gods. Your descendants will be like gods. Well, they may have been tall and they may have been mighty, but they all got washed away by the wrath of Almighty God. It was a lie. It was a lie in the garden. And if that's what's here, it was a lie as well. Just as the depravity that we'll see next week remains on the earth, so too does the work of demons. And this is the last thing I want to look at or think on as we close this morning, they are at work in your life. They are not going to do this again, I believe, based on the New Testament passages. They have been chained for this. They were punished for this. But here's what I want you to see. These evil spirits who prompted the depravity. What do we have in Genesis 3? The temptation followed by all that we've read so far. What do we have in Genesis 6? We have this demonic influence followed by what? Utter depravity. Destruction of the whole world through the flood. And here's what we need to see. We need to get this this morning. Demons are working in real ways in your life to pull you away from God, to pull you away from your spouse, to pull you away from your children, to pull you into yourself. To love of self rather than love of God. We must be vigilant. Ephesians 6 says we do not fight. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against the people that get on our nerves. We don't wrestle or fight. Wrestle is kind of a, a strange idea to us. We, we don't argue or fight really at the end of the day with those people in our lives who cause conflict with us. It is against demonic forces working behind the scenes we need Jesus' strength. We need the power of his might. We need prayer. Praying always in the spirit. Take up the sword of the spirit. Put on the whole armor of God. Praying always with all perseverance. Are we doing that? Because if we're not, we need to understand that depravity follows demonic activity. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us the encouragement today that we must be vigilant. 
We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the seed who crushed the head of the serpent. We thank you that he reigns supreme and that one day he will come back and cast all evil spirits into the lake of fire. Father, we thank you that on the cross as he hung naked, dying, mocked, he was a conquering king. That on the cross he defeated the greatest foe the world has ever seen. He crushed his head on the cross. We praise you for our conquering deliverer. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.